As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Top 5, a show where we count things down from number 5 all the way to number 1. And this week, war. Huh. Good God, you all. What is it good for? Well, obviously, it's good for this week's Top (laughs) 5. Because someone wrote in and says, hey, uh, I haven't uh, listened to all of your Top 5s, but perhaps you have a Top 5 war movies you guys could discuss. Yeah. And so this week, Top 5 war movies... And uh, my number five, Good Morning Vietnam. Now, now, a lot of people don't remember that. Uh, maybe because it's in the title right there, Vietnam. Right. But uh, we were in that war. And uh, the, uh, what is the uh, the radio? The um, Air America? No, I think it's... Uh, no, Air America radio was America. The, uh, the cocaine. Air America uh, was another movie. That, yeah. was, that was Mel Gibson. <laughs> radio. radio America. Yeah, radio, radio, radio Free America. There you go. Uh, and and uh, Armed Forces Radio. Maybe? Armed Forces Radio. That's what it is. And this follows the tale of a real announcer on that uh, on those airwaves during his time in Vietnam and some of the controversies he's caused. But as with most uh, biopics, uh, you know they kind of skew a little bit more to the uh, insanity side, the crazy side. And so we get Robin Williams coming in. Just going totally off the hook and uh, doing all sorts of crazy things for about an hour and a half, causing audiences to laugh and forget about the seriousness of the war until Robin Williams ventures out and actually sees the war for himself. And it brings the uh, the whole tone of the movie down just a little bit and makes us all really consider about uh, what is going on in Vietnam at a time where the Vietnam War was probably over, what, 10 years, 11 years I think this well, movie came I out in 88, they, 89. I, I want to say it was officially over in 75. But. Yeah, so this had been, okay, then like 12, 13 years. So, Good Morning yeah. Vietnam, my number five war movie. Not a lot of, there, uh, not a lot of bullets flying or, or uh, people saying, do you hear me, son? And yes, sir, yes, sir. But that's, that's my number five. The real Adrian Cronauer actually said that once he saw that movie, he realized he would have been... Uh, completely court-martialed oh, yeah. and possibly shot for some of the things <laughs> that that movie did. Yeah. He's like, there is no way I would have gotten away with a third of what they actually claimed that I did in that movie. Right, right. But I'm sure Good Morning Vietnam spawning a whole generation of people who wanted to become radio announcers. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why when Stephen and I went to college, everybody was pretending to be Adrian Cronauer. And everybody thought I was original because I was pretending to be George Carlin from 1973. See, steal from old things and people mm. don't know. Mm. Okay, Matthew, speaking of old things, what do you got on your number five? Are you calling me old? No, no. I'm sure your movie list is old. My number five, I actually realized when I was putting the list together that I had three, at the point that I had three movies, I had three different wars. And then I said to myself, well, there are a lot of wars, you know, if we're even just looking at just the 20th century. So I'm like, what about movies specifically from a particular war, which at the time I had not looked at? And then, of course, uh, Sarah is just like, hey, it's this movie and you have to. And I'm like, yeah, I have to. My number five is set during uh, World War One. It is the story of a desperate struggle to try and stop an, a, a, a secret weapon that's being used by basically the Kaiser's Germany and stopping it is this ragtag bunch of misfits 
there's an American soldier and there's a Native American and there's a Frenchman and there's an immortal Amazon from uh, the island of Themyscira, uh, Princess Diana, also known as Wonder Woman. My number five, Wonder Woman. And you say to me, how is that a war movie, Matthew? You're breaking the rules. And I say to you, it is a movie wherein it is set during a war where the main character's entire raison d'etre, if you will, which is very French, is to stop the literal embodiment of war from continuing to rage across the planet. And it has that beautiful sequence set in the no man's land that's actually a battlefield sequence where you see guys with guns shooting and shooting and shooting and Wonder Woman going out with her lasso and her bracelets and being super awesome. And I said to myself, Stephen's going to be mad at me because no, I think he's going to think no, this is a cheat. Because, no, because, uh, no, this is the thing. When it comes to war movies, there's going to be a lot of people going, well, you didn't put this on your list, and you didn't put this on. Calm down. Everybody just, <laughs> just calm down because you know what? War movies, if you go and look at the long list of war movies, there are movies yeah. on there like uh, Braveheart. I don't know if that's yeah. an, on anybody's list. That's a war movie. Master yeah, and Commander, of Far stuff. Side of the World. War movie. And there's yeah, a lot of things that like, happen during a war or that tangentially affect what's going on in the war. And so I would say that, yes, Wonder Woman is definitely a war movie. Cool. I mean, it, so, it definitely has war as, a, as part of the setting. Yeah. If a war is part of the setting, then I say yes. Rodrigo, I say, say on. what do you have for your number five? Uh, my number five is a movie that I saw in college, and I didn't, ex and I kind of expected to hate it, uh, but instead I kind of liked it. And uh, that movie is Three Kings. Oh, yeah. That almost made my list. Uh, Three Kings uh, stars George Clooney, Mark Wahlberg, and Ice Cube. And uh, it's about uh, the end of the Gulf War. And if I recall, uh, it's about these guys who hear that basically some of Saddam Hussein's treasure is out there like hidden and they go out and get it and a lot of misfortune uh follows them uh, as they kind of uh, try to try to do stuff because they're greedy um it is uh very stylishly shot it came out in 1999 the year of james movies but because movies <laughs> <laughs> uh, because movies were changed so hard that year, nobody remembers Three Kings. I feel that, <laughs> and if they had, if it, if this movie had come out in like '98 or like 2000, it would have probably made a bigger splash. But with you know Titanic and The Matrix, like running around uh, the special effects department, uh, that scene where you see somebody uh, like a, a rapid. Um, version of what happens to someone when they get shot and like the necrosis that follows as like people were like, yeah, that's cool. But you know, nobody's doing air Kung Fu on an iceberg. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, my number five, a forgotten gem that, uh, uh, you know, side note, I have not seen in a long time. So I wouldn't be surprised to like sit down and be like, Oh, this movie's so racist. You know, <laughs> it's like, I, you know, I, I was like 19 when I saw this. Uh, but yeah, Three Kings. I've, I've been meaning to sit down and rewatch re that I, again. Me too. I've been wanting to rewatch this movie for about 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. That's about probably been that long for me. Uh, speaking of rare gems. Oh, if you thought Wonder Woman was controversial. Oh, here wait, comes. Wait until you get to mine. Now, this is a John Huston movie. Many people Ooh. forget that this is a John Huston movie and has some top actors in it, such as Michael Caine. Max von Sydow and Sylvester Stallone uh -oh. and Pele. Uh-oh. I'm talking about a movie called Escape to Victory that came out in 1981. Wow. This movie is about a bunch of POWs who, instead of trying to escape, which they do, they try to escape their, their uh, prisoner of war camp, they are challenged by the Germans to play a game of soccer. Football, you mean? Yes. And so uh, the big thing is, okay, we've got to train these people to become semi-decent soccer players. Oh, wow. Including, including American Sylvester Stallone, who ends up being the goalie in this movie. Uh, and at the same time, they're also trying to help a bunch of Jewish 
uh, prisoners of war escape because uh, at one point, if I remember the story, and again, this is another one that I haven't seen in about 20 years, uh, they are trying to figure out a way to escape. But they say, hey, we don't have enough players. And if you want us to be on par with the German players, we need these we need this these other players to come and join us. And we know that they are prisoners of war somewhere. And the Germans are like, oh, these are all uh, uh, Jewish uh, prisoners. We cannot allow that. And eventually they do. And of course, they're emaciated and they can't play. And so that makes it even more of a uh, plot point for them to not only get these 10 Jewish prisoners of war um uh, prisoners out but also escape themselves and so the whole third act is them trying to escape or this secret plan to get out of the uh, soccer stadium and escape out into the world and the big question you have to ask yourself is do they stick around and finish the game or do they escape to fight another day yeah it is Escape to Victory this. here in the United States it's just listed as Victory 1981 it, it, this is at a time when Pele was a big deal because he could do the bicycle kick. Now everybody seems like even my kid can do a bicycle kick. Uh, but um, uh, at the time, you know, Pele was this big international soccer superstar, football soccer uh, star. And uh, it's just a crazy movie set in World War II. Yeah, this is like one of the first things I saw him in that wasn't Rocky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it was weird. It, it's a very different movie. If you get a chance to see it, just remember it's directed by John Huston. It's got Michael Caine, Max von Sydow, Pele, and it's got a bunch of uh, professional uh, footballers, including Bobby Moore in there. Uh, so go check it out. That is my number four. Matthew, what is your number four? You say Michael Caine, and I just think, what do you bloody mean, Michael Caine? Well, no, it's my Michael Caine. It's not Michael Caine. And if you're actually British, I'd like to apologize for talking like that. But nonetheless, my number four takes place in World War II because I said to myself, hey, I really do have this, you know, this whole weird kind of accidental theming going, so I was going to stick with it. This is actually the second film that joined my list because when I saw, as, as always, Stephen sends us an email and says, here's a topic for top five, and I'm like, great. I saw that email from Stephen, and I looked at it like 48 hours later and went, oh, that didn't say what I thought it said. So my number four said in World War II, it is a fascinating movie, and it is one of those films that everybody, even if you hate it, they're like, well, I know that the people who love it love it for a reason, and I appreciate it. You spend a lot of time saying to someone, this is why, even though the movie is wonderful, I don't like Casablanca. And that's the point where I stop listening to you, because this movie is really really fascinating, really gorgeous, really well put together. And for a movie that's now, I think, 80 years old, 1942, is that right? 41? It still holds together and it still feels like it's not slow or strange or alien to a modern viewing audience. And it has such emotion in it. Of course, there's that notorious scene where you see people singing the Marseillaise in tears and pride and you realize that these people are actually currently being held away from the home that they love so much by the actual Second World War. And, of course, it has that great ending where Rick Blaine, who is trying so hard to be completely antisocial and alien, finally makes the first, maybe the first good decision of his entire life. And tells her to go back to the cardboard plane where the little people are walking around because they couldn't afford a real plane. It's a beautiful shot. You can't even tell unless you look really hard and have an HD television. Did I tell you I got an HD television? Okay. Ooh. Ooh, I know. It's like, ooh, I'm firmly in the year 2012. But it is the best of the Humphrey Bogart movies as far as I'm concerned. It is just beautiful. It has Ingrid Bergman, who is likewise just beautiful. And while it takes place in and around and, of course, is completely inextricably tied to World War II, and thus, I feel, is a war movie, it isn't necessarily about the people fighting in the trenches. It's about the effect that it has on the people in and around who aren't in the trenches, the people who live in the countries and live in, you know, in Europe during the beginning of the Second World War. And so, most importantly, it's about someone who is, you know, fighting against the Nazi Nazis, who the Nazis want to capture trying to mm -hmm. escape and get out of the country uh, to England 
yeah. uh, which is the key focal point of this of this whole movie. Sure, and it has like a dozen iconic, beautiful moments. I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in this establishment. And the whole bit about the letters of transit here. What's the letters of transit? I don't even know what a letter of transit is. And of course, that gorgeous ending and that ending monologue. And then Rick walking away with the whole, you know, what is it? Uh, the beginning of a beautiful friendship line. It's a great movie. I think we saw it for Zach on film, didn't we? Yeah, we've seen that. Yeah, it's a good movie. If you if you haven't, go back and listen to the Zach on film episode about it, because that's a fresher take from me and I think from everyone on the show. But yes, Casablanca, my number four war movie. It's a beautiful film. Go watch it right now. Rodrigo, what do you have for your number four? Uh, for my number four, I also have a black and white movie. <gasps> um, uh, and it is, in fact, also a very influential piece of uh, cinema. I think in a lot of ways, Casablanca doesn't seem that old because it changed the way that film was made. You know, it, it's been so influential that we're kind of still doing Casablanca. And one thing that we're definitely still doing over and over again is uh, my number four, Seven Samurai. Ooh. Uh, which is a movie in which a bunch of uh, peasants have to go out and employ uh, some uh, ronin, basically some samurai that don't have any masters to defend their village and they can barely pay them. Um, but slowly the samurai come together and help the village um, and essentially it's, it's a movie that is punctuated by a handful of sort of tactical battles. Um, and you see how the, um, how the characters, uh, begin to bond with each other, how characters that you thought were one way, uh, slowly reveal themselves to be more vulnerable than they came across or maybe more interesting than they originally presented themselves. Um, you know, again, we've seen this a thousand times. This movie is a Magnificent Seven. This movie is uh, a bug's life. Um, there's, <laughs> There are lots of versions of this movie, but uh, Seven Samurai as... Um, kind of a lot of war movies it's like showing it's like a lot of war movies take place not in the core of that war but in the peripheries like Casablanca like Three Kings um it's sort of what happens po after that fighting right so it's like Seven Samurai presents a period in Japan where a lot of those big armies have fallen and can't uh you know subsist anymore so they become bandits um and so it's kind of becomes this is like, what is a war when there is no like kind of center to it? It's just everybody's just fighting to survive. Um, and Seven Samurai kind of up is is a great story that exists in that weird war limbo. Very cool. Very, very cool. Uh, let's see. We are landing at number three already on our list. Wow. Uh, this one directed by David Lean. My number three. It is definitely set in World War II. This movie came out in 1957. The Bridge on the River Kwai. Oh. Yeah, based on, based on the book. And this is the one, again, about POWs who are forced by um, the Japanese to build a bridge so that they can get uh, supplies from one place to another, also a bunch of dignitaries. And the Allies find out about this, and they set up a plan to blow up the bridge. And this is a really interesting movie that looks at um, how people can be corrupted, co-opted, uh, brainwashed, uh, fall into a belief system uh, that lets them believe that, hey, we're building this bridge so it will stand 100 years without really realizing that we are building this bridge to allow the enemy to transport their goods and, and people from one place to another, which actually hurts the allies. And that is why at the end of the movie, you see uh, the, the major say, what have I done? Uh, Sir Alec Guinness, also in another uh, great movie, not also on my list. 
Not a but, movie with war in it. Yeah. And yeah, I, I'm wondering if anybody's going to put that on their list. But I thought uh, about it and I didn't. Yeah, I, I thought about it too. But yeah, Alec Guinness falls on the uh, detonator and blows up the the bridge. Uh, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen the movie. Also something we've reviewed on Zach on film. But another movie that doesn't really have to deal with a lot of in the trenches, let's bomb them, let's blow them up kind of stuff, but more the human side of war. And this is just a brilliant movie. The first time I ever saw it, I was just like, wow, I didn't realize you could tell a war film that didn't have people in planes trying to drop bombs or people in trenches trying to shoot at one another, but actually looks at a more human story of how war affects people and different perspectives on war. And so that is why The Bridge on the River Kwai is my number three. Matthew, your number three, please. My number three takes place during the Korean War, which I believe takes place from 1953 to 1957, something along those lines, or maybe 1950 to 1954. I know it's in there. The problem is that in in the United States, we had a television show Mm -hmm. which was three times as long as the actual Korean War, which really throws off the time frame, especially since the show itself had a subtext where it was talking about the Korean War, but what it was really saying was about the Vietnam War, which was a much fresher conflict in our mind. That television show was inspired by my number three film, and that film is MASH. Yep, that's on my also ran. Yeah, MASH is interesting because MASH was a book, a film, and a television series. And none of them bear even the slightest resemblance to one another, except for some plot points and some names. Uh, But the movie version of MASH is directed by Robert Altman, and it is a real mind scrambler if you are just used to seeing, you know, the funny, wacky Alan Alda show on Friday nights. And so basically the story of MASH is the story of two surgeons, uh, Trapper John and Hawkeye, who are, again, serving in Korea, but of course, subtextually talking about the conflict in Vietnam. And it is really amazing, even though it's kind of in certain places nonsensical because Altman recut the film in a different order. So you actually see a sequence where a character leaves and then about 10 minutes later, you see her again in the film because the sequence was taken from a different place. And of course, there's a major subplot that makes a sequence, one scene make perfect sense, but the subplot isn't actually there. So unless you know about it, it's one of those moments where you're just like, this is a really great scene, but I don't understand what they're doing. But it is really fascinating. And of course, it features uh, Donald Sutherland in his probably most charismatic role ever. His version of Hawkeye and Alan Alden's version of Hawkeye are probably about as similar as Jerry Siegel's version of Superman and Brian Bendis's version of Superman. And I mean that in a complimentary way, because there's a there's a real kind of loving weirdness to uh, Hawkeye in the movie. And the whole movie of MASH really takes a satirical look at virtually everything. There's a moment which 40 years later feels like it plays really awkward. A character shows up and his code name or his uh, nickname is Spearchucker and he is African-American. And then they explain that this is because he's a really, really good football player. And I'm like, doesn't quite fly, still pretty racist. But then, of course, he ends up being the hero and putting people, you know, putting one over on the racist people in the next sequence. So I'm just kind of like, can I forgive this for 1970? Can I not? And you watch the film over and over and over. And really, everybody in it is terrible, but they're also very human. And of course... It has Gary Berg off as Radar, the only character who crosses over from the film to the television show, which then makes you wonder, you know, you always hear the thing about, well, this is a character's dying dream. I feel like MASH the movie is Radar's real experience, and MASH the television show is Radar's dying dream. And I know that that's a terrible thing to say, but if you get a chance to watch MASH, and it airs every once in a while on like TBS in the middle of the night, make sure you watch it unedited make sure you take into account that there are going to be some really questionable sequences 50 years later but kind of look at what they're trying to do and what they're trying to say and the amount of just sheer bizarre entertainment and scenery chewing in this film i think will put it over the top 
and it will get it past the problematic into the entertaining for you. And if it doesn't, I apologize. We'll move on. There'll be a better film down the line, I'm sure. There you go. Yeah. Rodrigo, your number three, please. Uh, my number three is also Bridge on the River Kwai. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. So a couple things on it. I think Bridge on the River Kwai works really well as a, a metaphor for war, especially from the Alec Guinness character's perspective, mm-hmm. where he kind of gets into winning small victories uh, as a as a prisoner of war is like, well, I want my men to do this. And then the Japanese allow him is like, well, we're going to do this. And the Japanese allow it to build the bridge. And then he's like, well, we're going to continue. Basically, we're going to keep winning and winning and winning. We're going to build this bridge. It's going to be amazing. And everybody who looks at it is going to be like, man, British people are great. Right. Um, and it's not until the end that he realizes that he has, you know, gone a completely wrong direction just because he got so kind of uh, hung up on all of those, like on that small succession of victories. Um the other thing, of course, about Bridge on the River Kwai is that it's a great movie that has a so-so movie in the middle of it um, <laughs> as a character that a character that leaves. Yeah. yeah, a character leaves in the first act and then has his own little war movie. <laughs> uh, and then it's like, we now return you to the actual war movie already in progress. <laughs> um, yeah. and it fits and it makes sense and those two characters seeing each other again at the very end is it is a strong moment but also you can take that whole part out and yeah. like it would not affect the movie which is bad it, it means it's bad <laughs> you know it's like if it wouldn't change how you feel about the movie then that could have all been done away with but anyway yes uh bridge on the river Kwai, definitely a very good good war movie that we watched for Zach on film, and mm-hmm. I have since watched again, which is more than I can say for the majority of Zach on film movies mm-hmm. that we saw, because that's just the sort of non-movie watching uh, supposed film student that I am. There you go. <laughs> Let's see. Number two. My number two. Lee Marvin. Ernest Borgnine. Charles Bronson. Football star Jim Brown. John Cassavetes. And a whole bunch more. And the rest. Are here on... Oh. They are the Dirty Dozen. Well, not all of them, but some of them. Most of them. This is a... So if people are like, I I want you guys to have movies where good guys are shooting at bad guys. Okay, here's a whole movie about that where you take 12 of the dirtiest, roughest, toughest, meanest, uh, (laughs) AWOLiest... Criminalists. Criminalists. Murderinists. (laughs) Rapists. Telesavaliists. And uh, <laughs> the Telly Savaliest. I'm the Telly Savaliest, baby. And you tell and Donald them, Sutherland. And Donald yes. Sutherland, yes. That's and you true. tell them, hey, we will give you a pardon if you guys go up, go out, and blow up this uh, this Nazi party that's going on at this castle. And then for the next two and a half hours, you see them go through the training, you see them go through the mission, and you see most of them die by the end of the movie. In fact, you see a uh, Jim Brown take a whole bunch of grenades and just drop them down the chimney and uh, blow up the uh, secret bunker where the Nazis are hiding. I Lopez is in that too. Yeah, this is a good, this is a good movie. This is one of those that is a little bit uh, fantastical today. This would have like Dwayne, the rock Johnson, Bruce Willis and the rest. Um, Jason Statham. Jason Statham. Yeah, this would be your. Chris Evans. What what is that uh, line of movies where it's got all those uh, old action stars in it? The Expendables. The Expendables. That's exactly what The Expendables is. It's a remake of The Dirty Dozen, and um, it's such a good movie. 1967 is when this came out. It also has some very problematic uh, places. Like I said, there's a character that is a rapist that goes uh, on a rape and killing spree at one point in the movie. And uh, there's some other problematic things, especially as you're dealing with some of the one person of color that's in this movie. Uh, but overall, it's a very good movie to to watch. And if you're looking for, I want to see good guys blown up bad guys, this is the movie on my list that is for you, The Dirty Dozen, at my number two. Matthew, what do you have for number two? You know, the thing about The Dirty Dozen that proves that uh, it's a Christmas is better movie? than real life? Oh. No, it's not a Christmas movie. It's actually based on real life events loosely, but the real life group was not called the dirty dozen. It was called the filthy 13. There you go. 
That is a true fact. Not, Look not it up. the inglorious bastards. No, that's a made-up word. No. Uh, that's not how you spell bastards either. The dirty bakers doesn't. Also, we prefer the term differently legitimate. Now, my number two takes place uh, during the Vietnam War. And I have to stress that this is a really good film by an excellent filmmaker. And for me, the first half of it is an incredible film experience. And the second half is just there to fill out that half hour before you go to bed. But my number two, Full Metal Jacket is three things it is not just a movie about the experience of becoming a soldier which is something that i don't know firsthand so i don't know how accurate it is it's not just a movie about the experiences that you know people have in wartime it is the only thing i've ever liked matthew modine in ever and i think that that makes a difference it's difficult when you have an actor that you you know you just you want to punch you want to punch really hard and you place them in the center of this engaging story directed by Stanley Kubrick or produced by Stanley Duke Kubrick at least. And you take this character and you put him in the center of all of the chaos that is full metal jacket. And somehow the, the, the terribleness of Matthew Modine kind of becomes this warm blanket that you can retreat to when things get way too cold. And this film really does just have some, terrible sequences in it there are long stretches of this film that if i watch in the house i get yelled at and i don't get yelled at by one person i get yelled at by three different people who are like why are you watching this terrible thing turn it off but the first half of the movie is just this incredible engaging experience and it takes you with matthew modine's character joker and takes you through his experiences in boot camp it makes arlie ermy a house name it makes all of these experiences, you know, kind of not necessarily palatable, but something that you see in movies for the first time. And these are stories that people claim are based on things that actually really do happen and really did happen. And that's horrifying to me. And that's part of the reason why you watch this film. You watch the experiences of these characters kind of the same way you do any Kubrick film, which is to say, you know, they're all just going to end terribly. But you can't look away. You know it's going to be bad. And of course, it does end terribly. And as I say, the second half of this movie is a completely different film than the first half. And it's not even necessarily a bad movie. It's just one that I like a heck of a lot less than the first half. But either way, that first half is strong enough to net it the number two on my slot. Full Metal Jacket. Oh, man. I don't even know if Joker has a real name in that movie. That's how weird that film is. Yeah. It's pretty intense. It is. Yeah. Especially right. anything dealing with Vincent D'Onofrio. Mm-hmm. Oh, you thought his kingpin was scary? Rodrigo, what is your number two? You thought his cockroach monster was scary? <laughs> um, no! No! Nobody did! No. It was cute. Uh, so... My number two is a movie about a bunch of uh recruits that join the war effort because their homeland is attacked uh by a foreign enemy and they all rush to um to sign up and as it turns out both the initial training and then the war itself is really not what they expected and they are facing a uh, a, a dire enemy who is uh both more numerous and and better at handling their own terrain than they are and it, things go really poorly for them for the majority of this movie i'm talking of course about starship troopers i knew it so you're mm -hmm. one sentence in and i was like oh this is starship troopers this is starship troopers yeah, yeah. casper van deen uh denise richards neil patrick harris i i feel like this is the film that put neil patrick harris back on his like uh upward path um obviously his break breakout hit as an adult was uh harlan kumar but right. starship troopers kind of got got him in through the front door there mm -hmm. um i uh you know starship troopers has a lot going on i hesitate to compare it to robocop but i, I think there is a sense there that 
you're watching a movie. It's like when you're watching RoboCop, you're watching a movie about a guy who's like a cyborg and he's like dealing with that. And in this movie, you're watching a bunch of kids who joined the army and they're dealing with that. And there's fighting and gunshots and monsters and robots and stuff. Um, but in the background, there's kind of all this stuff going on and all of this like uh, things that say is like, well, the world is kind of united under this like weirdly fascist order. That Not is weirdly like, fascist, really fascist. Yeah. Yep. Hyper capitalistic. Like it's like, oh, yeah, he's like. Uh, you know, this is available for citizens. If you'd like to know how to gain citizenship, join the army. Um, just like, th and you can get through Starship Troopers without paying attention to any of that. And you're like, oh yeah, there's like some fighting and some boobies and then some more fighting. Um, but uh, I think Starship Troopers was kind of trying to get some stuff in under the radar i don't know how well it did it i was pretty young when i first watched it and i feel like i got those things and those references and what it was trying to do um but then again i was also very distracted by anybody telling me casper van Dien is argentinian so <laughs> well you know um, in the future people are allowed yeah, to move and, around however they want and so there's no such thing as a border I I think that there's a much more sinister read <laughs> oh, to why Buenos Aires is entirely populated by like white English speaking people. Um, but yeah. so we'll we'll call the fact that they cast these actors as a uh, somewhat uh, as as a bold choice rather than them just casting like the like five up and coming sexy people. The, the hotness that, of right? the moment. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Paul Verhoeven, oh, or however you say his name, Verhoeven. Verhoeven. Uh, you know, also did direct Robocop. So when you're looking oh, at well, you the similarities between the fascist authoritarian, authoritarian uh, state uh, yep. during a war time, or in the case of Robocop, during a time where crime is, we're at war with crime. Um, right the parallels that you see between those two movies is not by accident. That's all Verhoeven and his, uh, and his view on, on fascist, yeah. uh, dictatorial States. His look almost slapstick take on satire. Yeah. yeah. I didn't even, I didn't even look that up, which makes me a bad film student, but I recognize <laughs> the, the theme. So that makes me a good film. student. I'm glad I spent yeah. all that money at an expensive university. Look at that. Look Word. at Rodrigo. Look at me. All right, Look at we, the big brain on Brad. <laughs> we have made it all the way up to our number ones. Uh, when it comes to war movies, there's only one movie that immediately jumps to mind as a movie that I want to watch. If someone's like, hey, you want to watch a war movie? I'm like, okay, sure. Let's watch The Great Escape. And then people are like, that's not what I was talking about. I'm like, great. Let's watch The Great Escape. And they're like, watch Black Hawk Down. <laughs> yeah, let's watch White House Down. Let's let's watch The Great Escape because it's got everything you want <laughs> in a in a war movie. It's got the good guys who are all been uh, wrapped up into a, in a POW camp, and they have to escape. That is their their job as a prisoner of war during you know during wartime. Their duty is to escape, not to just sit idly by. And there are some people that are like, eh, maybe you should just sit back and do nothing. But then there's a whole contingent in this movie of. Oh, no, we are going to not just get one or two people out. We're going to get hundreds of people out in this great escape. Again, based on uh, real events, uh, later turned into a horrible, horrible Hogan's Heroes uh, comedy on television. Uh, mm -hmm. But if you're talking about major stars, if you're talking about the Ocean's, uh, Ocean's Eleven of war movies, this is the movie you want to see. Not Dirty Dozen. You want to see... The Great Escape, because it's got Steve McQueen riding motorcycles. It's got mm -hmm. James Garner. You know, James Garner. I mean, that's like the only reason really to watch this movie. It's got uh, Richard Attenborough. It's got uh, James Donald, Charles Bronson again, Donald Pleasance going blind there, uh, James Coburn. And the list goes on and on and on and on. So this is a good escape movie. Filled a lot of tension. It's filled with, you know, evil bad guys. You've got good guys trying to do stuff. You've even got people who are uh, dead set in their ways, and they believe that there's only one way to escape. And there's a lot of internal tension going on behind the scenes. But if you're looking for kind of a, I don't want to say a feel-good war movie, but if you want one that kind of has an uplifting thing at the end where, yeah, they don't all escape, but man, they sure gave it their all. 
Uh, the Great Escape from 1963 is definitely a movie you want to watch, and it is my favorite war movie of all time. Did you say it has Lee Marvin and James Coburn? It does. Uh, uh, Wait, no, no, no. They are the same man. No, they're they they two different me. people. No, they are the same man. <laughs> he changes his name for tax purposes. Movie magic. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, that's eerie. Matthew, what is your what is your number one? Well, again, um, because of the accidental theme of my list this week, each one of my uh, movie choices takes place during a different war. And, of course, Mm -hmm. this one takes place uh, during uh, 1984, World War III. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Um, uh, In the opening months of World War III, several uh, freedom fighters, mostly teenagers, uh, came and fought against the combined Cuban and uh, Russian forces that had taken over the Midwest. Uh, and they also had a little bit of help from Mike Hammer. Uh, and I'm talking, of course, of 1984's Red Dawn. People talk about 1984 as a great year for great movies. And what it also was was a great year for really bad movies that are somehow endearing at the same time. And Red Dawn falls right in the middle of that that Venn diagram of bad movies that you somehow find really lovable. It's almost a Brat Pack film because it has Charlie Sheen, uh, C. Thomas Howell, has uh, Patrick Swayze in it. And they are all these teenagers who live in Nebraska. And by the way, that's not Nebraska. Um, there are way too many mountains in the background for a tax. Well, they, they flee to the to the mountains of Nebraska. The mountains which, of Nebraska. Know, right. They're all they're kind of which, there, but, you know. Hard to find uh-huh. sometimes. Sure, that's why that's, that's totally why bad. the bad guys can never find them. Because they're in the mountains of Nebraska. They're, they're in the mountains of Nebraska, the hardest place to find on any continental uh, map of the United States. That is very true. But the the really interesting thing about Red Dawn is how it takes some of the bits and pieces that you see in a traditional war movie. And when I say traditional, I'm talking like John Wayne and Audie Murphy and hey, you know, everybody come on, step together and we're all going to, we like Ike kind of thing. The old school war movie where everybody is just, you know, screaming for your side. And it turns it a little bit inside out and it has all of these little teenage characters. So it's almost like 16 candles with rifles in a way. Uh, But the thing about Red Dawn, I think that sticks with me more than anything is the underlying narrative that throughout this whole movie, and this is very unusual for a movie made in 1984, there is literally no one who is safe. Powers Booth shows up about halfway through the movie, and he's like literally the only character in the movie who actually knows what he's doing. Powers Booth gets killed. You have a moment where Jennifer Grey, who had just come off of Ferris Bueller's day off and was America's sweetheart at the time, gets shot down in cold blood in the middle of a sequence. Even Patrick Swayze does not survive this film. And so as you go through this, it starts out as kind of this weird little feel-good movie, almost like a high school you know, football plot, yay, Rudy's going to win. But then it also has moments where people are literally shot. Uh, at one point, one of their number sneaks off into town, gets captured, has a tracker planted on him and allows the evil forces to find the people hiding in the, in the hills. So they go and they execute their friend. And I'm like, man, this is some really heavy stuff for what I thought was a sequel to 16 candles, you know? And it, I don't, I'm not saying it's a good movie. Certainly not a good movie. A, it's one of the few movies that I could find that is about the world war three that started in 1984. And B It's a movie that will stick with you, especially the closing narration. The bits and pieces of it that stay with you are to the point where, you know, when they made that remake with Thor and his brothers a couple of years ago, people Mm -hmm. were like, I want to love this movie as much as I used to love the old movie. And they couldn't. And people were trying to make the argument that, you know, the Red Dawn that was made in 2012 is inferior to the movie from 1984. But they couldn't make that argument because the Red Dawn from 1984 is also not a good movie. So they just sort of spun in little self-referential circles until there was blood all over the walls. And really, it's kind of a metaphor for the movie itself. And that sentence, my friends, may actually win me some sort of award for sophistry. But nonetheless, my number one movie, Red Dawn from 1984, probably, I want to say the very first time that I recognized on screen Harry Dean Stanton 
and I spent the rest of my life and the rest of his life, may he rest in peace. Every time I saw Harry Dean Stanton in a movie, I would do a little squeal and go, oh, look, it's him. So, you know, that's kind of cool. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, Rodrigo, you are going to close out our list this week with your number one war movie. All right. My number one war movie is probably the only movie that has a any sort of protracted war sequence that I will actually willingly sit down and watch um, or or even put on myself. Mm-hmm. Um, usually uh, I don't tend to like war movies or, or movies that are actually about combat. Um, you know, quick action sequences are fun. You know, maybe like big action set pieces are fun as long as something else is happening. But usually I'm not drawn to that stuff. However, there is one movie that does have a big old battle in it that I will watch over and over again. And that movie is The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Man, okay. Um, Shield surfing. Yep, that uh, movie has a colossal battle in it. I mean, it is the majority of the movie in what is essentially a three-plus-hour movie. Um, the Battle of Helm's Deep just kind of keeps going and going and going, and not in a boring way, thankfully. It just kind of keeps developing, right? It's like at first the bad guys are doing this and then they find a way in and then the bad and the good guys find a way to rally. And meanwhile, there's sort of all these like smaller stories that are developing, um, while this war is going on. Um, it's a battle. Like there's a secondary battle somewhere else. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot going on and it is a fantasy movie. So, you know, there's like orcs and trolls and, um, what do you call them? Nazgul's. Um, and you know, all kinds of weird critters, uh, taking part in the fighting. Um, you know, I did say that I would watch this movie over and over again. Fortunately though, um, if you want to spend the whole day watching this movie, you just kind of have to put it on twice because it is extremely long. Um, and by now, um, I've seen it so many times that I just kind of like black out during parts <laughs> of it. <laughs> and then when I like snap back to it, I'm like, oh, we're in this part. Like I, I, I don't even remember like watching the, the previous uh, stuff. Um, but yeah, definitely for me, uh, the two towers is really accomplishes something amazing, which is it has kind of these prolonged action sequences that continue to be interesting. Um, compare that to say any given Transformers movie, which is like is going to be like seventy to ninety percent action, and it just all kind of turns into this like mess, right? Um, whereas the two towers. And and really all of the Lord of the Rings trilogy uh, does a very good job of sort of like pacing out its action sequences to have them be both long and interesting as they go. I have been able to watch at the time nine Star Trek movies in a in 24 hour period and never had a problem with that. But mm-hmm. man, I cannot watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy in one mm. sitting. It just kills me. It's tough. It is we tough. Have- we had a uh, we we've kind of started a tradition in my house that in uh, on Thanksgiving we'll watch all we'll watch Lord, the Lord of the Rings extended edition. Mm-hmm. Um, last Thanksgiving I had to work, so um, my uh, my girlfriend called me at work and um, a, a person a, a coworker was like, oh, what's going on? And I was like, oh, she's uh, watching Lord of the Rings. And she's like, oh, she's watching it without you. And I'm like, that is still, like, I have a full day scheduled. And that will still be playing when I get home. Like, (laughs) I, yeah, I'm working, I I think I was working a 10-hour shift. And I'm like, when I get home, Lord of the Rings is still going to be on. And probably there will still be plenty to watch. Yep. Yeah, you probably won't even be into the last movie by the 10 hours Yeah, the extended editions are 
colossal. They are just so long. Yep. And it is, I mean, that is that sort of thing. It's like, it's so much movie that I, I couldn't actually, I think if I actually sat down to watch them, I probably couldn't actually pay attention to the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, thereby missing the extra scenes or, or some amount of the extra scenes and thus kind of, you know, negating any any benefit to actually watching the extended editions. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there you go. Our top five war movies. Now, I mentioned a couple that were on my uh, also mm-hmm. ran list. I mentioned MASH and Three Kings. Mm-hmm. Um, I also ran list also had Apocalypse Now on it. Empire yeah, of the I Sun too. with yep. uh, Christian Bale and Lawrence of Arabia. Yep. So Lawrence of Arabia was on my list. We all, I also had War of the Colossal Beast. Uh, Star Wars, Captain America, yeah, was, Civil War. And don't forget War of the Worlds. Yeah, World War Z. Mm-hmm. The War at Home. Mm-hmm. War of the Roses. War of the Roses, with yes. Kathleen Turner mm-hmm. at her very best. Rodrigo, did you have some uh, also rans? Um, yeah, mostly I had a few uh, Zacon film standouts like ah. Lawrence of Arabia. Mm-hmm. Um, but after a while, I was like, I really need to like kind of break down what I think is a war movie and see if there's anything else that would kind of corner qualify into movies that I actually really like. Mm-hmm. And that's how Starship Troopers and Lord of the Rings crawled into the list. Yeah, very good. Right, right. All, all right, listeners, here's what you need to do. Head over to Majorspoilers.com and in the comments section for this episode, we want you to share your top five war movies or your reactions to our top five list. Why? Because everybody loves a list. We'll be back next time for even more fun. And in the meantime, if you want to see this show continue and maybe even become a weekly show, head over to patreon.com slash major spoilers and uh, pledge your support today. Every little bit helps. And if we had every single one of you listening to this show right now become a two or five dollar a month member, we would blow through all of our goals in one day. So what are you waiting for? Patreon.com slash major spoilers. And until next time, take care, everyone. We will see you soon. This podcast is copyright 2019 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.